0: This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on the 30th of September 2020. The topic was Therapeutic Frameworks Explained, ACT, CBT and Schema Therapy. On the panel we had Hayden, our lived experience representative, Melissa Black, Clinical Research Fellow and Clinical Psychologist, and Qian Hong Goi, Clinical Psychologist and Director of the University of New South Wales Psychology Clinic. Chairing this session is Dr. Carol Newell.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Carol Newell and welcome to tonight's podcast at the Black Dog Institute. Um, Today's podcast will be on therapeutic frameworks explained. We're going to be looking at ACT, acceptance commitment therapy, cognitive behavior therapy, schema and uh, dialectic behavior therapy. All right, so before we get started, I just wanted to give my acknowledgement of country. Uh, The Black Dog Institute would like to acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as Australia's first people and traditional custodians. We value their cultures, identities and continuing connection with country, waters, kin and community. We would like to pay our respects to elders, both past, present and to the future, um, and are committed to making a positive contribution to the mental health and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia. So, this is just a gentle reminder that our podcast will be recorded um, and you can find our previous podcasts um, on this URL, this website here. Tonight's podcast is going to be recorded and you will find us on YouTube as well as the um, SoundCloud and our Black Dog Institute um, webpages. All right, let's get started. Um, just a gentle reminder to everyone that we'd love to hear from you. Um, so, we cannot uh, have you ask us questions live unfortunately uh, via the sound recording but if you open up your Q&A box you can pop all those questions in there and hopefully we will get to some of them um, which would be fantastic we would love to hear from you audience participation uh, would be much appreciated Uh, we do have a few structured questions uh, prepared for tonight Uh, but yes we we would love to hear from you if possible Uh, let me now introduce um, our panel members for tonight so just to introduce myself I'm the moderator I'm Carol Newell and I'm a Sydney clinical psychologist Um, and I'm going to do a quick whip around to all our different panel members and have them introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about your background expertise that's relevant to tonight's podcast. So we might start with Melissa Black.
2: Thanks Carol. I'm Melissa Black. I'm a clinical psychologist and clinical research fellow at the Black Dog Institute and clinically I have been trained primarily in CBT and also training in Mindfulness Act and DBT and use those in my Practice. Um, And from a research perspective, I look at transdiagnostic treatments and transdiagnostic processes, so
1: how we can integrate some of these ideas. Next, we might get Hayden, our lived experience representative, to introduce himself.
3: Thanks, Carol. Um, Yeah, so my name's Hayden. Uh, I'm a ceramicist by trade, um, but I've had uh, uh, quite an interesting mental health journey. Um, I've used both cognitive behavioural therapy and uh, acceptance commitment therapy along my journey. Um, And I'm currently just in a a more traditional uh, therapy at the moment, uh,
4: which is all going really well. So I'll be talking about that.
1: Thanks Hayden and Chen.
4: Hi there everyone. I'm Chen Gui from University of New South Wales. I'm a senior lecturer here, teaching primarily in the clinical psychology program here. Part of my role is also directing the University of New South Wales Psychology Clinic, which is our training clinic for clinical psychology postgraduate students. So lovely to see you all and thank you for the invitation.
1: So, tonight's podcast is, I think, a little bit different from our previous podcast, which is we've, you know, really discussed controversies and issues around different topics, but tonight it's a little bit more educational, and we're going to go through the different frameworks, and we actually have a few slides prepared. We're going to start with the one everyone knows best. We won't stay too long on it, um, but we are going to introduce the one that... All psychologists are trained on um, if they come through university pathways, which is cognitive behavior therapy. Um, Shall I do this one or should I pass it over to one of the experts? because I prepared some of the slides, I might go through some of it, but I love for Melissa and Chen and even Hayden to be able to jump in. Um, so the basic description I have for a cognitive behavior therapy um, is that it looks at behavior, thoughts, feelings as intertwined, and that you know thoughts affects the way we feel, and it can also impact on how we behave uh, in response to a specific situation. Um, so when we think about this, really, um, this is a slide that I prepared where we maybe look at somebody who may have social phobia where they've been invited to a party. They may have thoughts such as, look, I want to enjoy myself. Um, I'll say something stupid and people will laugh. If you have some thoughts like that, you might feel very anxious and a little bit down. And as a consequence, uh, you may not uh, go to that party. You may avoid social connections. And of course, that worsens the situation. People might stop inviting that person to the party and they lack the chance to practice those social skills as well. So in terms of thinking about cognitive behavior therapy, um, we might change Uh, some of the thoughts that a client might have and present with some of the thought errors. And we might focus on changing some of those behaviors as well through things like exposure therapy, uh, behavioral experiments, um, and, you know, even integrating some pleasant activities, uh, maybe even incorporating things like exercise to really lift that mood as well. Um, And so that's the basic for me, that's what I typically describe cognitive behavior therapy as um, for my clients. Um, So Chen and Melissa, anything to add to that one?
4: I think that's a pretty good summary, Carol.
1: Oh, thank you, Chen. Coming from you, a clinic director, it's a, it's a big compliment. Hayden, you've used yes. CBT as one of your first line of treatment. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience of cognitive behaviour therapy and the things that you liked about it?
3: Um, so my experience with cognitive behavioural therapy was um, sort of my second experience into, um, in my mental health journey. Uh, my first experience ended up being quite traumatic um, and it was a family therapy session that that just um went down a a kind of a line of questioning that really triggered some stuff with me and um, was um quite um, quite painful to relive in that moment and and not dealt with very well so um during my during the subsequent time, I was quite afraid of going to Uh, seek some mental health, um, um, uh, to seek somebody to, to talk to. Um, And then when I went in and I overcame that, that initial fear, um, I walked into the room and um, sat down with, with um, my therapist and said to him um, quite openly, like, this is what happened. Um, It was very painful. I don't want to do that. I want to talk about my past. I don't want to, bring up any any old feelings, nothing, nothing good has come out of that for me. Um, I really need help with what I'm going through right now and I really need some tools um to deal with today. And he was like, great, look, um that's fine. We can do that. Let's let's do some cognitive behavioral stuff. Um and I was like, all right, that sounds perfect. Let's let's give that a crack. Um so I was really um really excited to get to jump in and, and try something new. Um, and something sort of more practical as opposed to just just talking through um, feelings and past, which is what I thought um, therapy was more about. And so he started running me through it and I used it very specifically on um, some relationship problems that I was having at the time. Um, And I would tend to uh, get in a situation where I would be um, triggered by um, something my partner said, and it would make me feel very anxious. Um, very, um I can't think of the word right now, but uh, anxious kind of sums it up. And what that would cause me to do is to shut down and shut that person out um, in a way of like punishing them or, or trying to bring attention to what just happened, so that they will prove that they love me or that that everything was fine or. or um, it would just shut me down and this was really damaging to to my relationship and to my partner. And it's something that I wasn't quite happy with. So the cognitive behavioral stuff from the very beginning was firstly just about being mindful, um, in that moment. Um, so I wasn't even aware that it would happen. I was kind of aware after the fact, like maybe two or three days later of not talking, um, I would be like, Oh yeah, something's wrong. But, um, not knowing how to fix it or not even knowing what caused it by that point. So I very, um, very quickly got to a place with him um, that I could just be like, oh, wait, I think it's happening right now. And just be quite mindful of that and change the thoughts and the feelings in that moment. And I, I remember turning to my partner and feeling that and was just like, look, I'm having something's going on. I don't even know what triggered me. I don't know why. But something's changed and I'm feeling that that um that behavior of wanting to shut down and wanting to shut you out. Um, I think I just need some time to to think on it. Um and uh she at the time was like um yeah sure like take all the time you need that's that sounds great. Um, Yeah so
1: Hayden, it sounds like it, it really helps in terms of organising, kind of being able to see a cycle of, of situations and, and things and responses that don't do so well. And I think one of the things I really like about CBT is that it sometimes helps us organise um, different yep. strategies um, to be able to break it down into different parts as well. Um, and so, uh, turning back to Chen and Melissa, you know, what are some of the things you like about CBT?
2: Uh, if, if I can jump in and echo what Hayden's been saying, that it really is that present focus, then yeah. if someone has quite a specific um, problem that they're working through, I was, I was lucky enough to work on a spider phobia treatment trial, and, you know, CBT works very well in that sort of framework. Yep. Um, but it's, it's a really helpful way to, as you say, organise experiences. And it can be applied to almost any type of problem to map it out. It doesn't necessarily mean that's the best place to intervene, but this model is is so generic and applicable to so many problems that it's, it's really useful.
1: Absolutely. What about you, Chen?
4: Yeah, I agree with that. It allows a person to really understand the experience because usually when we're going through a difficult situation, uh, there's no really a sense of kind of like the dimensions of the feeling, the affective space of this is what you're thinking, what is the yeah. behavioral drive. So I think the model very nicely kind of unpacks it in a in a very um, simple but yet comprehensive manner that yeah. I think clients can understand and can relate to that. And also it gives us a blueprint and, and a direction in terms of what are the changes that can be made in the different areas, the behaviors, the thoughts, the feeling components. Of
3: Yeah. And just really like separating that out to make you realize that, um, you know, you're having this thought and feeling and then it's affecting your behavior and then it's affecting everything. And without somebody like pointing that out and really breaking it down for you, you just, you just kind of in the moment, it just kind of happens without anybody thinking or, um, or saying anything or, 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 or making a, a choice. Um, and then You know, particularly in my situation where I'm in a relationship, now it's affecting two people in a really negative way and nobody really knows how to talk about it and nobody really knows what to say. Um, So just having somebody just kind of explain it and break it down and, and make it really kind of just take a look, just like, this is what happens. This is what it feels like. We can talk about that. So notice that, just start there.
1: And I kind of love, Hayden, that when you walked into therapy that second time, you really didn't want to dwell into that history, right? And CBT allowed you to do that just to look at the situation itself um, and and how to break that down. Um, Granted that CBT has a lot of advantages and it's kind of a lot of the gold standard um, in training early career psychologists, what are some of the constraints and limitations? I might uh, cycle back to Mel on this one, Melissa. Sure. Um,
2: I think it's one thing that I really see is it's highlighted on this slide that CBT typically doesn't work with emotions directly. Um, And sometimes I find that that can be a limitation in really getting people to to feel what's going on. And it's actually one of the common bits of feedback that we might get through a course of therapy is I, I know it logically, but I don't feel it yet. And so really being able to connect and it's in the cycle, but being able to connect heart and head um, sometimes I think can be, can be challenging and it requires
1: that, ne- that next step of experiential work. Absolutely. What about you, Chen? What do you see as some of the disadvantages or maybe the constraints of mm. this particular framework?
4: Look, I, I, first of all, I think all approaches have its, has its uh, mm. constraints, yeah. So including CBT, definitely. We know from data that, you know, we never get 100% recovery rate from any treatment. Right? Mm-hmm. So I think that there's still a lot more for us to learn about what works and what doesn't. And one of the things I agree with Mel is that this lack of focus in the feeling component itself. Yeah, And I think, I think that sometimes CBD can seem overly rational and logical. Yeah, And people, if they're not able to kind of engage in that type of thinking set, it can be uh, quite challenging for them. And that's why sometimes we have to start off with kind of the behavioral side. But there's still a lot more that we don't know about how how our minds work and how people get into difficult and challenging situations. The other aspect is sometimes that it is important for us to have a more comprehensive framework to move into more the developmental tactics, complex trauma, uh, trauma histories, things like that. And I think CBD does a great job with things like PTSD, definitely. A lot of trauma work, but I think there's a lot more that we still need to build on and refine our understanding in that regard.
1: Absolutely. So- with that in mind, we're going to now introduce schema therapy. Um, so, schema therapy, I might uh, hand this over to you, Chen, to describe to us a little bit about schema therapy.
4: Yeah, so schema therapy is essentially, I'll say it's an extension of CBT, and that's how it was historically developed. So, uh, when people like Jeffrey Young was the founder, of, or accredited to be a current founder of, of schema therapy, uh, they... In his clinical practice, along with his team, he found that there are certain people whereby they were more chronic, more having more pervasive issues that were not responding to traditional CBT. So they dug a little bit further in terms of what are other types of approaches that can augment or can further extend traditional CBT approaches. And there arise a whole field of schema therapy. Essentially, the focus here is what we call underlying schemas. And and the helpful way to think about schema is like a little bit of a blueprint of how we view emotions, we view our self-identity and our relationship with other people. Now, all of us have schemas, sometimes helpful ones, sometimes unhelpful ones. And schema therapy specifically looks at those unhelpful schemas that hold us back. Uh, And it's essentially the schemas that get activated or gets triggered in current life. These schemas are typically formed early in life, early experiences, uh, and including trauma, including a relationship with early caregivers, peers, people around them, especially in uh, childhood and adolescence. And it's also, also a lot to do with unmet emotional needs of a child. And that's why, because of that, different types of schemas, unhelpful schemas that can pop up. They're typically looked at as kind of five different areas of schemas uh, that's unhelpful anyway. Uh, the helpful ones are like, you know, I'm worthy, I have resources, the world is a relatively a safe place, people, generally people can be trusted, but there can be also unhelpful schemas based on a person's History, what they've been through in life, and the relationships, interactions that they have. Uh, The red ones here are are some of the schemas that are quite commonly seen, like a sense of disconnection or rejection from others, so a sense of mistrust or defectiveness as an underlying schema, Uh, impaired autonomy of performance, a sense of uh, underlying deep failure, dependence, uh, or entitlement, self-control issues, so on and so forth. So these are kind of like underlying driving forces that were programmed in the past, but still has its effects in the present moment when certain situations trigger them, this will come up. That's why in the previous slide, you'll see that there's like an arrow that pushes the current, uh, the tendencies for certain emotions, certain thoughts, certain behaviors. And that's why it's an extension of CBT in that it also the intervention point uses cognitive strategies, behavioral strategies as well. And what I think schema therapy has, has has done very well is uh, augmented a lot of more emotional based strategies like imagery rescripting, using imagery work to work with past trauma, for example. Chair work to help a person recognize the different facets of a person's uh, identity, including the healthy parts, the parts that are not so helpful, the types of behavioral responses. So, in re- using the chair work, strengthening the parts that are helpful, and then making sense of how these different parts have come up to be. So, that will be kind of a bit of a summary of what schema therapy is about.
1: Yeah. Um, disorders where it has the strongest efficacy for schema, Chen, like it was developed in response to yep. certain disorders that didn't seem to shift uh, yep. with CBT. Where, where do we usually uh, see schema used?
4: Uh, typically with things that are more pervasive, so chronic conditions, uh, individuals whereby they have long history of difficulties, uh, issues to do with personality structure, personality factors. Uh, you know, there's research to looking at its use in uh, borderline personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, for example, or anything to do with more pervasive, longer, chronic ongoing issues that is across the board. That's why we kind of tunnel down towards the schematic yeah. aspects.
1: And, you know, you know, in speaking to, to Hayden, you know, you didn't want to touch that history. Schema actually delves, I think, it's one of the core features of schemas. It actually looks at early. Life experiences, right? It really asks us to travel back to that um, developmental space. So it's something to keep in mind for people listening in, you know, it, you know, for clients who don't want to go into that space, maybe schema may not work so well because we do look at that developmental trajectory within, within schema framework. Would you agree with that, Chen, that that early life experience? We, we actually talk a lot about the imagery, that feeling that first, first emerge um, in, yes. in childhood or adolescence.
4: Yeah, part of the work is to understand where these things come from. Right, where, how we've ended up here, and, and what are the factors that contribute to that. And part of the conversation often is understanding the origins of it. And sometimes that can be very painful for clients, as, as Hayden correctly said. You know, sometimes yeah. it's just not easy. And, and if people don't want to go there, not ready to go there, then absolutely it's, it's not the right time to go there either. Yeah. Yeah? But schema does have that frame around uh, the emphasis. Yeah,
0: I
3: also found that doing the cognitive behavioural stuff um, when I was not prepared to go there or I had a bad experience already, um, it did actually give me the confidence and it did reinstall a lot of trust um, to then delve into a lot of deeper, more painful issues. So just having a little bit of cognitive training and just getting a little bit more tools like on my under my belt just like gave me a lot more trust with future practitioners and future therapies and allowed me to open up a lot more um, just in my general life as well with my partner, with, with people around me. Um, so yeah, it can be, I feel like cognitive behavioral stuff. Another, another great point about it is that it, it, it's a really good foundation. Uh, it gives you a really good like, grounding of like, okay, I can have a, if this has a positive effect, I can, I can have a positive effect on my mental health and I'm, I'm ready to, to delve into harder stuff.
1: And I think the general recommendation has been that, you know, we usually start with CBT for a lot of disorders and then maybe move on to schema and it's almost like easing a client into it. But we also have people out there who practice straight schema as well, right? They use schema as the first framework. There's a question here from an attendee um, who said, uh, is schema work relevant to individuals who have experienced significant trauma? Could this be potentially harmful?
4: Chen. Yeah, um, yes, it can be uh definitely be relevant for individuals with uh significant trauma, complex trauma, specific traumas in the past, uh, because that's often how a lot of these uh schemas are generated. So part of the process is to look at that. And can it be harmful? I'll say that schema therapy is a tool, right? And it depends on how a person wields this tool, right? As as Hayden has said early on, you know. Sometimes when clinicians are almost too keen to jump in without recognizing where the client is at, then that can be unhelpful, yeah, but if the client is ready or if there's a process that's working up towards that, a proper rationale, properly understanding the reasons why we're doing we're going certain directions in therapy, then that can be a very helpful experience too, so I'll say that uh, it is by design, things like schema therapy and other types of even CBT does a fair bit of uh, trauma work in. Even things like EMDR does a fair bit of trauma work. Is how a person uses these tools, uh, that make it harmful or beneficial.
1: We're going to have a chat now about acceptance and commitment therapy. So I might get Mel to now describe to us acceptance and commitment therapy.
2: Thank you, Carol. And I'll I'll get Chen to jump in at any point as well. Um, So acceptance and commitment therapy is part of what's often referred to as the third wave of CBT. So it has come, you know, from a a particularly a behavioral tradition. Um, And with some recognition that some of the strategies in CBT, things like looking at um, the, the rationality of thoughts and correcting unhelpful thinking and so on um, was not necessarily working for everyone and that it might be more about the relationship to thoughts rather than the thoughts themselves that is where distress lies. And so um, this is referred to as the ACT Hexaflex, the six six components and core processes of ACT, which all focus on psychological flexibility and that uh, it's it's looking at um, different ways of uh, fostering that psychological flexibility. So just running through them very quickly. So, you know, mindfulness is a strong tradition in in ACT. And so being able to contact the present moment, being able to sit with difficult feelings um, and and just noticing them and being aware of them and and how to shift attention between those things. Um, Values is another really core component. And and this comes back to really needing to have shared goals with the the person that you're working with. But we think of values as uh, the the metaphor that I like is that values are the directions on a compass and goals are the destinations. Um, and so you can never really achieve a value, but it's more that you're um, acting in line with values and, and doing things that are consistent with them. And that's where the committed action piece comes in. And so doing things, and that's really the behavioural part of ACT and and really looking at whether what you're doing is in line with your overall values and you know whether you're doing things that are moving you away from them or just not moving you towards your values um, self as context looks at you know that that the self is the only constant across um different situations and that we can have an idea of ourselves as um, a daughter or a son and as a psychologist and as a chef or you know all these different identities but actually yourself is the only constant between those things and so needing to work out who the core self is um, Cognitive diffusion is really that that process of being able to look at the relationship to thinking. Um, and so uh, we we actually had a um, a technical glitch earlier where someone was coming through really high pitched, and that's actually one of the ACT techniques. And that you know, being able to say really painful things um, in different ways can actually reduce the the power and strength of those. Um, but really, being able to to unhitch from from negative thinking and And allow them to be there, um, but working with the distress. And then acceptance as well, and and I guess it's it's, it's in the name of it, but really being able to confront difficulty and a recognition that human experience, suffering is common to the human experience, um, and being able to sit with those difficulties. Um, Chen, do you want to jump in? Is there anything else that, that you see as the core features um, of action?
4: I think that you've, you've covered that. Essentially, it's, it's the two key parts in its name is one of the parts is accepting that the feelings, the difficult uh, emotions, uh, the difficult situations, at the same time still being committed to that which is valuable for a person, what is important to them. So accept the things that are actually there that can be painful, can be challenging, but almost bypassing that uh, with understanding with awareness, with acknowledgement, but then really focusing on the things that are important for an individual,
1: yeah. Hayden, you've experienced ACT. How did it compare to CBT?
3: Um, so I found, um, I found in ACT uh, a therapy that, um, when I came to it, um, was intoxicating, really. Um, it really spoke to me at the time. So I'd done all the cognitive behavioural work um, um, with my therapist, and and we'd done that over about ten sessions, um, and then um, those those um, sessions that are that are catered for by the government ended, so I couldn't really afford it anymore. And as I was leaving, he was like, "Look, if you really want to continue this kind of training, look up ACT. Um, I think you'll get a lot out of it." And so I did. Um, and the way I kind of really. Came to it was via a podcast that was all about act, and it goes through each of these um, six six practices, six processes of act um, in quite detail, and I kind of learned through that. Um, and it, and it said at the time, even like um, there was one about cognitive diffusion, um, and they were going through all the ways you can diffuse from certain thoughts um, and painful thoughts and painful emotions and feelings and. Um, and they were like, yeah, this this can be a very intoxicating kind of part of it um, because uh, it's it can have a real profound effect. And it did for me. Um, I was able to take like really negative thoughts and real things that were holding me back and just separate from them um, to the point where it, it felt like they were gone and, and I wasn't dealing with them. Um, and so I just kept on doing this. It was, it was something that I could do in my mind. It was something I could do by myself. Um, It was something that I didn't have to talk to people about. something I didn't have to pay for. Um, So for a lot of reasons, I I really gravitated towards it. And it it was having this really profound effect on me. Um, And I got to a really happy place using ACT um, and and the six processes. But what I found is after using it for many years by myself was probably not the best way to do it. Um, And what I found is that... It actually allowed me to go very deeply into some really dark places um, because it lets you um, minimize the harm that um, uh, things are... are, Minimize the effect things are having on you. It allows you to welcome more of that into your life. Um, so So I ended up taking on way more emotional burden from other people than I normally should have been able to do. Um, and I gave very little because I could take care of everything that I thought I needed to inside my own head. I didn't have to ask for help. I didn't have to talk about my problems. And so I just ended up in this, this um, problematic space where I was taking everybody's emotional burdens inside me to try and deal with them um, inside me. Um, and it just took me to a very, very dark place after a while, uh, and I, um, I completely burnt out and, and was completely emotionally wrecked um, and had to go get some, some, um, some therapy after that, um, quite intense therapy.
1: That sounds like a really interesting take on ACT and that it may be that you need a little bit more of that therapist guidance to be able to constrain it and potentially, potentially guide you in its use.
3: Well, yeah. Um, well, like one thing that I've been talking about with my therapist um, currently is, is my lack of boundaries. I don't have any boundaries when it comes to people. Um, I love to talk and I love to let people talk at me and and i love to encourage people to to say really really painful things that are going on and i just take them on and act really allowed me to take on way too much um and why so it was like this this really weird space and I, I kind of wish that i could i wish that i had done it with somebody i wish i'd had a guide i wish i had somebody to talk to about it because i'm sure they would have guided me through a lot of these pitfalls um but having had the cognitive behavioral training and um, a lot of it uh, really set me up to do all this ACT therapy stuff by myself, it just made a lot of sense. Um, I was able to build on everything that I've worked on, all the tools seemed to plug and play almost, um, almost interchangeably between the two therapies. Um, and ACT just like that whole idea of psychological flexibility. Um just just yeah it was just it, it was just great it just felt really good um it allowed me to take it allowed me to use it for for almost anything in my life and and that's kind of the the point of act it it kind of works in so many different spaces um but i think it definitely needs somebody to work with so if you're trying to do it all by yourself you're just gonna get yourself into trouble pretty much mm-hmm.
1: Um, So there's another question here uh, from our attendee. Um, What is the practical difference between ACT and mindfulness therapy, Melissa? Um,
2: I I would say that mindfulness actually encompasses a range of different um, therapeutic traditions, but also tools, you know, as, as Chen was talking about, and that mindfulness can be anything from meditation to other ways of, of being aware and, and paying attention to what you're doing. Um, and so ACT really uses mindfulness as, as one of the, the tools and it does filter through all of it, but it also has that behavioral piece of then acting and, and making changes in that
1: committed action as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, what are some of the constraints, do you think, Chen, of ACT, um, compared to maybe other frameworks?
4: I think it comes down to match and fit. Um, I think sometimes people take to CBT mm-hmm. uh, very well. Sometimes people take to ACT very well. There's just a sense of, of how it matches and, and it fits their way of viewing the world and their experiences. So I would think that probably comes out a little bit more towards the match and the fit.
1: Yeah. yeah. And and we've we've discussed this a little bit Melissa and Chan um that you know we w- For ACT, uh, and I I don't use it as much as I use CBT and schema, when I mention ACT, there's sometimes a very strong pushback from CBT therapists. And I've always wondered, what was that about? Because, you know, even within research institutes, um, when we mention ACT, uh, within, you know, that that context, there's this really strong push against it. Why do you think that might be, Chen?
4: <laughs> Maybe it's uh, a
1: controversy now. <laughs> pure
4: sibling rivalry, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> I think CBT has been around for way longer. And look, the founders of ACT, uh, all three of them, uh, have pretty strong traditions either in cognitive or cognitive behavioral therapy uh, across uh, Steve Hayes, Kirk Russell, and also Kelly Wilson. And I think that sometimes with CBT is that um, it's great in terms of uh, working against non-evidence-based therapies. I think it, it, that's how it started. It created this, created this culture of looking at evidence. Uh, so sometimes it can be overly severe sometimes, but it looks at the new kid on the block sometimes because there's, there's an inbuilt sense of being critical, which is, I think, very important. It gave us our uh, feel a lot to be grateful for. But sometimes the shadow of that is that when there's new kid on the block, it might take a little bit of time before they kind of say, well, oh, hang on, what's the evidence for you to say that this is something that works? Now, fast forward 10, 20 years down the track, now the Act has established a much stronger evidence base. In fact, uh, the, the, the people who are really big in CBT, like Stephen Hoffman, and the founders of, of Act, are in fact collaborating a lot these days. And uh, I think, Melissa, you were, you were saying a lot about what they're kind of currently publishing together. You want to speak a little bit more about that?
2: There has been a renewed interest in or or, a a move towards process-based therapy and really that Stephen Stephen Hayes and Stefan Hoffman are both coming from both ACT and and CBT, but looking at the shared processes and that this is where we should be focusing our interventions and how these interventions are actually working, um, there are lots of shared features and that, you know, CBT in lots of ways does encourage psychological flexibility um, and and similarly, you know, panic surfing in CBT for panic disorder is a form of, of mindfulness and, you know, surfing those difficult feelings. Um, so really looking at how there, there are lots of shared features rather than differences.
4: Yeah. It's almost oh. like, sorry. Go for it. Go for it, It's go. almost like both have, have matured and kind of said, oh, we, we both have evidence and we both are looking at the same thing, which is helping people. So let's kind of put everything on the table and say, like, how do you do it? How do I do it? Are we looking yeah. at similar or different processes and let's learn from each other, which is happening over the last three to five years only, really. And really, the last three years or so, they're starting to come together more.
1: Yeah. Do you yeah. think that answers maybe some of the, que- the question I've got here from an attendee? Is, what are the assessment process key indicators for determining fit? Which is a little bit of that process based model, isn't it? Melissa, what do you yeah, think? Yeah. Is, is it no longer about picking one framework over the other, but drawing from? key elements?
2: Yeah I'm not sure whether process-based therapy has quite got there and that we don't routinely assess for you know all the different mm. processes that someone could be um, experiencing um, but I think referring back to, to Hayden's experience that it can be about the journey and where someone's at and as, as Chen was saying the match um, and also the the type of difficulty that sometimes really specific problems are quite well targeted with CBT but if someone has a general sense of um, you know we can refer to Russ Harris as the happiness track you know trap this general sense of unhappiness and not really
1: knowing where things are going that the values framework in act can be incredibly valuable absolutely Hayden I accidentally cut you off did you want to add anything to that
3: uh, no, I was just going to say that, um, yeah, a lot of my, a lot of the stuff that I, I, um, used in ACT therapy, um, like the acceptance and the mindfulness and, and all that kind of stuff was, it was all stuff that I learned while doing cognitive behavioral therapy. So like they're very interchangeable. They've got, you know, like they both work really well. They've both got great things in common. And I think that's more what people need to do is just, just realize that they're, they're both really important.
1: Absolutely. So I might move us along here to the next therapy framework here, which is dialectical behavior therapy. Mel, I might get you to speak to this one again. Sure, thanks, Carol. Um, so we, we haven't put
2: everything on the slide here, but the, the idea of um, dialectical behaviour therapy is that, and first talking about dialectics, is the idea that there can be two seemingly opposite things that don't necessarily need to be in tension, but rather can uh, exist together and, you know, that synthesis between or integration between. And so the core dialectic in DBT is acceptance and change and that both of those things can occur um, and that there might be some things you accept and some things you change, but there doesn't need to necessarily be one or the other. Um, and this um, therapy really came out of uh, Michael Linehan's work, working with um, uh, people with borderline personality disorder and chronic um, suicidal ideation and self-harming um, as a way to uh, both work with those really um, difficult experiences and complex trauma, um, but also teach skills. And so on the left there, working through mindfulness, emotion regulation, interpersonal effectiveness, and distress tolerance. So teaching those skills in quite a um, didactic way, while also helping the person implement them in their lives. And um, one of the one of the other core processes in DBT is validation and of course all good therapy will validate a person's experiences but really being able to look at uh, someone's emotional vulnerability and their um, some biological factors that might predispose them to experiencing um difficult emotions and also how invalidating experiences over time have made regulating emotions quite difficult and so Uh, one of the the core processes that we work towards is being able to build a wise mind and being able to sit with both the emotional mind and the reasonable mind or rational mind and bring those things together.
1: Yep Um, and and Mel tell us a little bit about the origin of DBT why was it developed in, in terms of it was in response to quite specific disorders wasn't it?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, um, Marsha Linehan is really the, the, the founder and, and leader in, in dialectical behaviour therapy um, and a recognition that these um, people with borderline personality disorder or chronic self-harm and sort of suicidal ideation and um, emotion dysregulation or impulsivity might need some quite specific um, skills to be able to regulate their emotions and tolerate distress. And so, it, it goes into a lot more detail and quite specific compared to um, certainly CBT in being able to teach those skills, but also that that biosocial theory of recognising where the problems might have come from.
1: Absolutely. Look, one of the things I really love about dialectical behavior therapy, which I think sometimes the other therapeutic frameworks that we've covered tonight, and by the way, they're not exhaustive. There are others. We recognize that. Um, But the one so far is that this one really focuses on interpersonal effectiveness that, you know, isn't really core to the other frameworks, even though each of them kind of touches upon it, interpersonal effectiveness is really important in this one.
2: Absolutely. And that um, relationships, and, and Hayden was talking about this before, you know, that relationships are um, challenging for lots of people and that our therapeutic frameworks and certainly the ones we've mentioned tonight don't necessarily work directly with them. Um, but in, in this framework, that interpersonal effectiveness can involve um, gaining skills, that, it, you know, it it can be quite behavioural in the way that um, we can help people work in different
1: relationships and navigate those. Absolutely. Chen, Trend- oh, What's your favourite component of DBT that you like?
4: I think it's how comprehensive it is because Mm. it deals with uh, almost all different aspects of it. And that's why DBT, if done uh, according to what it's meant to be, it takes about a year at least, right? Mm. You, You attend skills training workshops, that's one component you do individual therapy, which is the second component. And thirdly, you do have phone coaching as well, which means when you're highly distressed, you can ring the therapist to actually get, it's a short consult, it's not a long session, a short consult to remind you of the skills used. And I think that this particular framework is really beautifully done in that it's very comprehensive, especially uh, really important for those who, are, who have chronic difficulties, high suicidality, high uh, tendencies for self-harm. I think this is a very good comprehensive framework that provides them the skills for clients to be able to work uh, and manage those challenges. Absolutely.
2: I think, sorry, can I just pick up on something there? And and Chen, you've highlighted really nicely that when DBT is done properly and in its full form, and I think DBT is quite specific that there are different levels that you can use DBT skills quite quite, um, eclectically or you can have DBT-informed treatment or a fully integrated DBT program. And so needing to look at those different levels of how DBT is used.
1: Absolutely. Um, And I, I really love what you've just said, Melissa, which is, you know, you can draw from different components of it, but, you know, in done in its full scope for that specific disorder, it is actually really, really structured, isn't it?
2: Yeah ab- absolutely um and and um the core element as well is having a, a consult team of therapists because um working with uh, a a group where there might be quite a lot of um, risk or you know some some chronic problems that the therapists recognize that they need support ongoing support as well
1: now going through all these different frameworks as i'm as i'm looking at it i i sometimes use some of them right and but i see so many things in common right we talk about them as being different frameworks as they're different categories but are they really that different what do you think it might be common between all of them um might go to chen
4: um i agree that is probably that's the commonality of course is what they're trying to do we're essentially trying to help different clients with varying different situations and life circumstances and life challenges uh, to come out of that, to be stronger, to build a resilience and develop mm. the skills that is helpful for them. Um, I think it's really important for us, despite all the different brands, CBT, schema and stuff, to recognize that there's one body of evidence. There's no schema, brand evidence, CBT evidence, but it's to follow the evidence and what does evidence tell us? What works in what context? So I think that you know these this day and age, I think you know therapists need to be really strongly versed in one perhaps two, but at the same time, it's okay for them and probably useful for them to also look more broadly to understand how different things fit together. And I think the field is starting to move towards that. Like Melissa was saying earlier on, like this process-based therapy, that's essentially the move towards that. Right, CBT and ACT is coming together to say, let's look at everything that we know about what works, in what context, and what are the patterns that get people stuck. Let's list them all out and then let's Let's see how to actually target those specific factors. I think this is where the field is moving to. We're not quite there yet. There's still a lot of question marks, obviously. But I do think that there's probably a lot of coming together uh, that's really important.
1: Yeah.
2: And I I also wanted to add, I really like the the DBT principle of do what works. And it is really, you know, about recognising that that, that, you know, we, we can call something a core belief or a schema or if we think, you know, psychodynamically a latent underlying belief, but actually they're all the same thing. And it's about finding what, what works for the person you're working with and their specific problems. Um, and, and, you know, in a CBT behavioral experiments fashion, you know, maybe you might need to try a few different things to get at
1: that schema or that core belief. Absolutely, yeah. Hayden. Listening to all these different frameworks, um, are there things that you think are really important across all these frameworks that therapists and people listening in who are part of our health professionals need to keep in mind that works for clients?
3: Well, I think um, like Chan and Melissa were both saying, like it's very important to just bring into the room what what the client is comfortable with. Um, so just like really opening up that 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 dialogue to start with and see where they're at and see what they're comfortable with and where the big fears about the process of therapy um, in general are because not everybody's okay with walking into a room and just like opening up. Some people love it. I myself struggled with that for a long time. So like Cognitive Babel was, was great for me to start and, and gave me that real opening and opened that door to allow me to get to the point where I could talk about whatever I want. Um, openly and honestly, um, and then also like throughout all the frameworks, it seems like mindfulness and uh, acceptance um, are, are two big, two big um, processes that that seem to go through through everything. Which, in my experience as well, is super important because first of all, you need to be mindful of what you're going through so you can bring that to the room so you can talk about it. Um, without without you being the the person like the the expert in you um then nothing's going to happen you know you can you can talk about what's going on or what you keep doing but if you're not going to talk about you know like what's going on in your head or or the thoughts or the schemas or or um the things that you're stuck on um or or how it feels or or when it happens then then you, you can get stuck in the room not fixing anything um so and then and then the acceptance part of that as well is just like just being able to be like okay yeah this is happening i can accept that it's happening and i i can just talk about that like i don't like it uh, but that's why i'm here i'm I'm not proud of it um it's not it's not something that i really want to have inside me which is usually the problem like that's that's you're not accepting something um I find more often than not, so yeah those, yeah, so there's acceptance and and mindfulness um, practices throughout okay. all the therapies and really important.
1: And it, it sounds to me like as you're describing it in your experiences that the process is really important, that therapeutic alliance seems quite important and Chen you know we 've kind of talked a little bit about this, yeah. One of the best predictors of of benefits at the end of of treatment are things like goal-setting, right? That's
4: right. Um, if you look at the body of literature uh, by people like Bruce Wang, paul and Zach e. Mill, uh you find this literature around what they call common factors. So these are factors that are common across different psychotherapeutic approaches. And what they've, they've taken is that they've stripped away all the brands, essentially, and looked at. When they look at psychotherapeutic processes, what are the large contributors to treatment outcomes? And one of the things that are at the foreground and that's the largest factor, high loading is goal consensus and collaboration. That means the agreement of goal between the clinician and the client. And I'm glad that you brought uh, up uh, that, Hayden, like, even with your, your personal experiences, if, we just, if you don't trust the therapist, there's no way that therapy is going to go anywhere, right? Yeah. If you don't have an agreement in terms of how we understand the issues and in terms of a shared goal of where we are going, with a sense of good alliance, therapeutic relationship, then no therapy is going to work. Yeah, So I think that is something really key for all clinicians to really keep in mind and not just be focusing on the brand per se, but also focusing on these very important common factors like empathy, alliance, therapeutic relationship, having good consensus in terms of the goal and where you're moving with the client. And really all that ties in together with a sense of safety. Yeah. yeah.
1: Absolutely. Now we have a question here from Cara. Do you find it's more helpful to choose one type of therapy for your client or do you integrate bits and parts of therapies? This is a loaded question, I think. (laughs) I think it's quite different for ECRs compared to your more experienced <laughs> clinician, where I would say, you know, you need to like be a master of one or two therapies and follow it through really well. And then be careful drawing in without constantly diverting into different journeys, right? If you're gonna do CBT, do the B as well as the C, but you can integrate different parts. Now the other two clinicians may disagree with me. What do you think, Melissa? in terms of that question, do we integrate bits and pieces or do we stay the course?
2: Yeah, I, I guess it comes back to where the evidence is. So we need mm. to look at where the evidence is for particular therapeutic processes. Mm. And we know that, you know, we, there, there are those common factors, but also, uh, you know, processes like cognitive challenging or behavioral experiments or exposure therapy for anxiety have really good evidence. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, emerging evidence for, for ACT processes and mindfulness and so on. So I think, do it eclectically, um, but providing there's evidence for what you're using and that you're doing it well. I think, you know, it's not worth just chucking everything at at a problem, that you want to do a few things well rather than everything. Yeah, and
1: I'm also keeping in mind the early career psychologists, right, where they might be doing cognitive therapy and they don't have that confidence and they they start pulling in from something else without following through with something like behaviour therapy for anxiety disorders. What do you think, Chen?
4: Um, I just want to go back to early comment. I do agree that it's really important if for someone who is learning to become a clinician, for them to really strongly establish themselves in one at most two therapies mm. to begin with. Uh, you need to what I call establish your mother tongue of therapy, almost right. That's the base language, and from there you can translate, and you can then be a master of different languages, so to speak. And without doing that, sometimes we can chop and change too quickly. And we become confused and the clients that we're working with also become confused. So I think that's really important to keep in mind. The second thing is I will also work out what is the history of the client. If the client has tried various different things and upon further inquiries, yeah, they have done a pretty good job in that and they have had good exposure with that, then maybe it's no use going back to the same place. But if the client hasn't had a treatment before, there's something that's fairly simple, straightforward, or it's, you know, there's a clear sense of what the evidence points towards, then I'll start with that first and not try to change too many things. Yeah, so I, I agree with Melissa that it's it's a bit of a balancing act as well, yeah.
1: Absolutely. Now, yes, Melissa. Uh, sorry, could I just jump in and talk
2: about that's where the, the branding of therapies can be a little bit problematic. You know, sometimes you see people and they say, I've done CBT, it doesn't work. And as, as Chen rightly said, you know, you need to unpack, okay, what, what was it in CBT that you did and what worked and what didn't work? Um, because CBT is actually a, a broad range of things and, and like the other approaches as well.
1: Absolutely. And there's some research that's come out uh, where people say they've done CBT, but when, we, when you actually uh, look at some of that, that research evidence, a lot of people haven't done the BT of CBT. You know, oftentimes um, in certain spaces, uh, exposure therapy is completely skipped altogether. Um, so we want to really unpack it when they, when they come in, don't we?
4: Yeah, I think that's part of understanding the clients. Mm. That, and they all are different. Each person and work with are different. They might mm. share the same, you know, uh, issues. They might have shared similar backgrounds, but they're all unique individuals. So that's why the understanding of the individual is really important. And that shared understanding with the client to see whether we've got this right. And then based on that, looking... and and relying on both clinical judgment and the evidence, then working with the client factors, that's essentially evidence-based practice. Evidence-based practice has three components, not just what the research tells us. It's also to do with what the specific client characteristics are and also your clinical judgment. So you need to combine all these three elements in order to really become an evidence-based practitioner that way.
1: Absolutely. So we are heading towards the end of our podcast tonight with three minutes left and I wanted to give Hayden the final word in our podcast tonight. Um, for people who are listening, right, um, what's your advice to those listening and thinking about seeking help they've heard about some of these different frameworks um, and don't know where to start?
3: Um, my advice would be just start anywhere um so the first thing is is just just walk in the door just make the appointment just start talking to somebody um and i I would i would preface that as well by saying look if if it's not going well that's okay as well that's not a reflection of you that's not a reflection of your mental health it's not a reflection of anything other than just like maybe you're not it's not the best fit with 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 the therapist it's just not working um and try somebody else like that was my Biggest problem is that um, when I first did did therapy and it didn't go well, and I had a really traumatic experience, it stopped me from from seeking help for a very long time, and um, that's that was hugely detrimental. It set me back, you know, a decade almost. Um, and I, I wish I would have gone sooner, but that was just my journey, uh, and I'm not I'm not super upset about it because I'm in a very healthy place now, and I I, I really. Um, I really enjoy um, therapy and 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 my mental health journey so just just get started Um, talk to somebody talk to a friend get a recommendation Um, one of the reasons why I'm with my current therapist is um, is that she's been helping my sister for a very long time and I could see in my sister some amazing changes so I was I was very happy to 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 try that out and and see if that worked for me Um, so yeah get Get recommendations, um, but just just do it. Just try it. It's it's really important for everybody.
1: Thank you, Hayden, for sharing that. So we're heading towards the end of our podcast and we wanted to just remind everyone that there are resources at the Black Dog Institute to help you please do visit our um, website. Um, This is a monthly podcast where we have it on the last Wednesday of every month. We've got one coming up um, in the next month, looking at social determinants of suicide, um, looking at the white paper that's coming out, but also just around developing policies and what the latest research is showing. So do join us next month on Wednesday. Um, We've got these other... Uh, these different URLs as well. Please, you can follow us on Facebook as well as LinkedIn. So thank you, everyone. Oh, and finally, before I finish, uh, there's also the TIN, the Essential Network uh, for Health Practitioners, My Compass, and we also have our Black Dog Institute online clinic. Um, As we head towards the end, I just want to say a really big thank you to our podcast panelists, Melissa Black, Chen Gui and Hayden, um, for an amazing contribution tonight. Um, and I'm so sorry that we didn't get to everyone's question, um, in the, in the Q and A box. Um, but hopefully we got to some of them and we do, uh, download all the questions so maybe we can respond to some people um who did put up questions but we didn't get to tonight so thank you everyone for joining us and we will see you next month bye everyone
0: thank you for listening if you'd like to hear more of our podcasts subscribe to and review black dog institute on itunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.